Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to today's Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking about Connor Hogan, Global Practice Lead in Privacy at BSI. Hi there, Connor, how are you doing? Hi, Ronan. Pleasure to be here today. Thank you very much. No problem. Glad to have you on here again. Now, we're going to talk about about basically about data security, mainly about privacy and about GDPR and SHREM. So how is the SHREM's ruling impacted on data transfers and privacy shield? That's a great question, Ron, and it's something that we've probably spent many a nice uh, studying since the, the ruling came out from the European Court of Justice um, in the summer of 2020, which uh, seems like an incredible long time ago now. Um, but at a, at a very high level, the Court of Justice ruled um, uh, on the basis of an action that was taken by Max Schrems originally in the Irish domestic um, courts uh, and made its way through the European Court of Justice um, around the legality of transfers of his personal data to the US that Facebook um, was undertaking. And what the Court of Justice found was that um, the US didn't afford the protections of EU citizens' data in the same manner as which the GDPR does. Um, obviously, prior to the GDPR, we had the European uh, Directive for data protection and force as well, and the GDPR built on the protections in that. So what that really means is that any organisation that would have relied on what was called the the, the privacy shield, the adequacy agreement that was in place between the EU and the US that recognised the US as a jurisdiction that was adequate to protect uh, citizens' rights, and it it meant that the, 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 the privacy shield was no longer valid. Yeah. And therefore, any transfers that would ordinarily have taken place, these are transfers of personal data that would have taken place under the privacy shield to the US could no longer continue because the privacy shield was no longer in force. And realistically, that has significant impact on just day-to-day commerce that organizations in Europe undertake on a daily basis. And let's be honest, in today's society, with the proliferation of cloud technologies, online retailers, and everything else, at the, at basically in your pocket, uh, at your fingertips, and um, commercially, organizations transfer personal data and vast swathes of personal data to the US without a, a secondary thought in reality. And all of that was predicated on the basis of the Privacy Shield Adequacy Agreement from the European Commission. So with that gone, fundamentally there's a gap. And what that gap is, is it means that organisations can no longer actually transfer the data to the US under the Privacy Shield. But Privacy Shield was one such mechanism that the European Data Protection Law provides organisations to use for transferring personal data. So while it is quite significant, and, you know, it wasn't entirely unexpected, I might add, was flagged quite in advance by the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice uh, previous to it. And, of course, uh, this, this case is known... I suppose colloquially and, and probably in, in urban legend at this point as Schrems Two yeah. because it was um, it was uh, preceded by the Schrems One ruling uh, by the European Court of Justice, which found that uh, Privacy Shield's predecessor, the Safe Harbour Agreement, which in effect was exactly the same thing for all intents and purposes, was also found to be invalid because of domestic US surveillance capabilities, and, and, and that's the fundamental reason why Privacy. Privacy Shield has fallen, um, in that the protections that you and I and all of the European citizens are afforded under the framework of EU data protection law, obviously at the forefront of that is the GDPR, means that we have certain protections here in Europe that aren't translated into um, US law and that aren't mirrored in US law. And therefore, because of surveillance practices that the US government undertakes, um, our our fundamental rights uh, for data protection and indeed for privacy um, aren't respected to the same level of rigour as they might be in Europe. And so Shrems 2 has had quite a significant impact. But as I mentioned, Privacy Shield isn't the only mechanism through which organisations can transfer data. So 
really the impact is, okay, I'm an organization that used to rely on Privacy Shield or I was transferring data to a third party who was going to do something for me. Um, they're in the US. We relied uh, and had agreements in place on the basis that Privacy Shield was there. Now we can't rely on that, so we need to find another transfer mechanism. And the GDPR has clear provisions for other transfer mechanisms. The first is what's called Standard Contractual Clauses, or SCCs. What that is, is it's a set of predefined contractual clauses um, that binds um, the controller of the data, so you know the organisation in Europe, most likely, um, and the processor outside of Europe, uh, most likely, um, to um, certain responsibilities and commitments to each other. And there are variations of the, these standard contractual clauses that exist already. So that's one option. And it was seen as the default option if Privacy Shield was to be invalidated. However, the Court of Justice also made it very clear that standard contractual clauses also need to be revised in light of the surveillance measures that the US government has in place. And by extension, if in effect, you're transferring data from the EU as a controller to any other third country, which is obviously a country outside of Europe, then in order for you to be able to do that under the basis of standard contractual clauses or any other mechanism, you need to consider what are the surveillance nature of the laws that might be in place in that jurisdiction. So that's quite an onerous um, responsibility that's expected of organisations in Europe and quite complex for you to actually undertake because you may not have ready available access to the expertise required to yeah. assess those third country jurisdictions. Um, and so it is quite complicated. There are other mechanisms then under the GDPR, Roman. I mentioned the standard contractual clauses, SCCs. Yeah. Uh, then there are binding corporate rules, BCRs, similar to standard contractual clauses, but they're designed for sort of intra-group and um, intra-company transfers within maybe a, a corporate group of companies. And there are obviously uh, adequacy agreements from the European Commission. The Privacy Shield was one of them. And there are a number of other jurisdictions around the world that already have um, adequacy agreements. Uh, some, for example, would be New Zealand, Japan um, received the most recent one, I think it was this year. Uh, Korea is in negotiations with the EU for an adequacy agreement. Um, and then Article 49 of the GDPR also outlines what it calls other derogations. And so this, these are different circumstances that um, are different options that organizations might have in order to be able to enable non-repetitive um, transfers out of Europe. And that's um, a critical caveat there. Such things like maybe the data subject's explicit consent, which can be quite hard to, 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 to demonstrate. Um, but if the data subject was to consent to the transfer of their data outside of Europe after being fully informed of all of the risks yeah. that might pertain to that transfer, well, then a, an organisation could proceed with that transfer. But as I said, it would have to be non-repetitive. So really, we're looking at sort of isolated, by exception only sort of circumstances. So I suppose to summarise... Um, you know, the trends to impact uh, at a very high level, Robert. what it means is organizations can't transfer data to the U.S. under the, the previously existing Privacy Shield um, adequacy agreements because that no longer exists. In order for you to be able to transfer personal data to the U.S., then uh, because current U.S. law is deemed not to be sufficient um, or aligned with um, the EU domestic laws, um, then you need to put in place additional safeguards and measures that would effectively uplift um, uh, those protections. One of the mechanisms by doing so might be standard contractual clauses. And as I mentioned, there are revised standard contractual clauses recently published yeah. by the European Commission. Uh, but critically, in terms of continuing transfers to the US, organizations need to do a little bit of due diligence. So undertake a transfer impact assessment, determine the extent to which um, individuals' rights might be um, uh, curtailed or compromised under those transfers, yeah. and, and make sure that you're documenting these kinds of things. So all in all, quite an impact, if I'm honest. Well, I can remember about five, four or five years ago, Twitter announced that any data that was uh, not from South, uh, North America or Central America or South America 
was going to be uh, stored anywhere else but America. So if you were in Europe or Asia or Africa or wherever you were, outside outside the American continent, that data will be stored in Ireland because they were, they were kind of worried about what could happen with the uh, American government accessing data. That's correct. And, and to be honest, um, one thing I would suggest, though, is that any organisation that has its headquarters in the US um, can expect a certain level of um, US government um, surveillance and activities. Um, and it, it, to be perfectly honest, you know, if you're a US um, uh, multinational, you're a US corporate, you're not going to try and avoid and being uh, compliant with US domestic law. Like one of the fundamental sort of uh, basis uh, of, of risk management is to not break the law. Yeah. Um, and so any organization will obviously look at US domestic legislation um, with a sort of a compliance view. Well, we need to, com- to comply with these, um, with these um, uh, provisions in US law. Um, and so in order to be able to afford protections to citizens in other parts of the world, it it, it sort of was a natural step for organisations, maybe uh, such as US multinationals, to look to um, uh, to, to store uh, data and maybe process personal data belonging to their customers in other jurisdictions around the world. I know that there are there are probably going to be uh, there's probably going to be an awful lot of litigation between sort of the European perspective of data protection and privacy um, versus the US interpretation of data protection or, or privacy and uh, more broadly. Um, and look, at, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a solicitor, and, and I definitely think that there will be significant developments into the future to to potentially align um, more closely. Um, the European and American perspectives, because with Europe taking such a, a lead role in the concept of data protection, um, which inherently conflicts with uh, sort of US perspectives regarding privacy and surveillance, obviously in the cause of national security, um, the disconnect is very real um, and it's hard to square the circle, especially in today's globalised, technology-driven, cloud-platform-enabled worlds that we live in, you know, both from a commercial sense and in terms of the industry and, and big tech, but also from a consumer technology perspective, enabling people to, you know, to do things in their daily lives, you know, find out what their destination is order food and get it delivered online, etc., etc. All of these have impacts that are, you know, invisible maybe to the end user, um, but actually contextually from a public policy perspective and from an overarching privacy policy perspective are really complicated. Yeah, for me, I'm worried about somebody, for example, who works in Ireland for an American tech company. And the American tech company does, does all the majority uh, of the HR, maybe the majority of the, uh, how they're paid, is done is sort of via America. Now they could transfer data back and forth. How is that going to work? Well, uh, how does it work? Um, that's a really good question. I think for any organisation that has its headquarters in the US and has a footprint in Europe, um, they need to look at what data transfers are necessary for them to be able to do what they want to do. And, and as I outlined um, at the start, Roman, the, the fundamental requirement for organisations would be to be compliant with the, the laws of the land in which they're operating within. Um, and and the, the disconnect between... Europe and the US, notwithstanding, um, if you're if you're talking about an organisation that has employees in 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 a European country, say Ireland, yeah, I was, I was really going to say the UK, but uh, we're very close to that not being the case anymore. Uh, so with the, with the European um, base, European employees, uh, the GDPR is going to apply. So the only way you can transfer data outside of Europe from that European base to your parent headquarters in the US, for instance, is if you satisfy the compliance obligations that you have under the GDPR. So you need to enable that transfer through one of the lawful mechanisms that I've mentioned, whether that's standard contractual clauses in something like an intercompany transfer agreement. Maybe it is much broader than that and it's binding corporate rules. All the while... And sort of post trends too, considering the surveillance impact um, of of um, those transfers as well. And what, what's really interesting for you know data protection nerd like myself, Ronan, is that we've seen um, guidance issues from the European Data Protection Board, which is obviously the um, sort of collective group um, for all of the data protection regulators in Europe. 
specifically in response to the Shrems 2 ruling. And one of the things they very, I suppose, from my perspective, as I said, it's very interesting. But one of the things that they've noted is that if there is any if there's if there is surveillance, if there are surveillance laws in the third country, so in this in this example we're talking about the US, um, well then uh, you need to uh, take certain steps in order to, to look at mitigating the risks associated with that transfer. Uh, the guidance that's been, or the, rather the draft uh, standard contractual clauses which have been issued by the European Commission uh, advocate taking a risk-based approach and the European Data Protection Board doesn't advocate that. So right now there's still an element of, of sort of, um, I won't necessarily say confusion, but there's a lack maybe of clarity um, as to the right way to assess the impact of those transfers. But fundamentally, um, any organisation transferring data out of Europe to a third country needs to assess the impact of that transfer on the data subject's rights. And in the example you outlined, um, that would mean assessing the, the essential guarantees of the, the US um, uh, domestic legislation in comparison to the EU. And, and that can be challenging. Yeah. Now, earlier you briefly mentioned U the UK, and that brings us to the elephant in the room, which is Brexit. With Brexit coming up, how do we handle data transfers to and from the UK, considering our, our GDPR uh, obligations? Um, <laughs> that's a great question, Ron. And, and to be honest, um, uh, without uh, maybe sounding like a broken record, it's exactly the same situation. Brexit is just a, a, a political decision to take the UK out of the EU. Um, and, you know, I think as a, um, as a European project, it's, it's, a, it's a real tragedy to see the UK leave. Um, but the UK will leave, and I suppose it's in the process of leaving right now. Um, and when I, if we layer data protection impact and implications on top of the, the Brexit decision, um, the result is quite clear. The UK will, unless an adequacy decision is uh, forthcoming from the European Commission. Um, and it would have to be an adequacy decision approved and, and, um, and, and stamped and ratified in record time, I might add. But without an adequacy decision, the UK automatically becomes a third country, just like America, just like yeah. Brazil, for instance, just like India or China or Russia. And fundamentally, that's the ultimate conclusion of the Brexit process when we're looking at it purely from a data protection perspective. So if the UK is a third country, then in order for controllers in the EU to continue to transfer data, maybe to their data processors that might exist in the UK, um, and believe me, there are vast swathes of companies and large numbers of organisations in this exact situation, Roman, whereby they might be a controller in the EU and have a data processor in the UK. What they need to do is to identify the most appropriate lawful mechanism to enable that transfer to continue. And again, as I said, maybe without sounding like a broken record, the options are quite clear. Standard contractual clauses, um, binding corporate rules, if it's an internal transfer within your group, or some other form of Article 49 derogation, or hopefully, and a lot of organisations are probably pinning their hopes on this final um, indication uh, or element, is an ad adequacy decision from the EU. And that, what that would mean is it would recognise the UK as a jurisdiction that provides um, essential equivalence uh, in terms of data protection rights um, to EU data subjects. And of course, you know, I think the political um, interest, the politically interesting aspect when we, we look at things purely via a data protection lens is that, look, at the UK is currently in the transition period from Brexit, which means it's formally left uh, the EU already. I, I'm not sure what the actual... They, they, they left the EU was, I think it might have been the 31st of January um, 2020. Um, so the UK has formally left the EU already. The transition period, you know, is really just to enable both the UK and the EU to come to um, an agreement about trade and data and uh, all of the various impacts uh, and considerations that, that both um, parties need to, uh, to manage in terms of their future relationship. Um, uh, but the um, uh, the fact that they're, you know, essentially leaving the club, their laws 
uh, right now are exactly what the GDPR is. I mean, the, the GDPR is enforced in the UK, and um, so they're. The legal framework is no difference to the one that's in Ireland or no difference to the one that's in France, um, you know, within reason. Um, uh, and so surely an adequacy decision would be quite quickly forthcoming because doesn't it make sense to afford the UK an adequacy agreement very quickly? And, and politically that makes sense um, uh, because the UK is coming from the GDPR world into, you know, whatever the, 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 the post Brexit GDPR landscape will look like in the UK. Um, but it's not that easy because it's a political decision. So, you know, the question being, what can organisations do to handle data transfers to and from the UK? Well, to the UK is the biggest impact from a European perspective. So we need to identify um, uh, what is the appropriate mechanism through which we can ensure those continued transfers. Um, and the simplest, uh, probably the most easiest, uh, you would need to make sure that the contracts that you have in place with your third parties in the UK are underpinned or contain um, an approved standard contractual clause. As I mentioned, new draft updates to those have, have recently been published. Hopefully they'll be finalised in the coming months. So if you do already have standard contractual clauses, great. And um, just be aware that the, the framework for standard contractual clauses uh, will will likely change and, and be uplifted with some improvements um, in 2021. So be ready to revise them. And if you don't have standard contractual clauses, I would urge organisations to get them in place because they are a robust, or, or rather, they have been typically seen as a robust mechanism. Um, uh, obviously, threatens to maybe cause that into question a little bit, but um, that's a, a whole other um, kettle of fish. Uh, EU, but UK transfers to the EU are largely unaffected. The UK has already pronounced that the EU is an adequate jurisdiction for UK to EU transfers. Yeah. And for the foreseeable future, any organisation that's involved in transferring personal data from the UK into the EU can continue perfectly um, fine, that those data are legitimate, uh, those data transfers are perfectly legitimate, and that no, um, no action needs to be taken. The British regulator, the ICO, has already acknowledged that position. Um, and by virtue of the fact that the UK government has, has in effect, um, enacted the GDPR into its own domestic legislation in preparation for Brexit, um, uh, it was quite a straightforward process for the UK to recognise the EU as a adequate jurisdiction. Unfortunately, the EU doesn't and hasn't applied the same logic. Um, and because of the, I suppose, the similarities, I might say, and again, practice this by, suggest, by, by clearly saying I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a solicitor, but in the US, there are significant surveillance laws on the books over there, which means the US government has significant powers of surveillance and, and in terms of data. Um, and uh, investigations, etc. The UK has similar provisions, uh, one of which might be might be familiar to some of your listeners around the Regulatory Investigatory Powers Act, yeah. um, uh, uh, and um, and others um, on the books in the UK mean that the UK is very much in in the same grouping from a, um, a surveillance uh, um, perspective as the US. Um, so yeah, so Brexit complicates things quite significantly with regards to data protection and, onwards, and, and data protection compliance. And one of the other aspects which is probably oft forgotten about by, um, by organisations or what I deem the forgotten article of the GDPR, that's Article 27, um, uh, and it mandates that any organisation that's outside the EU that doesn't, you know, that doesn't have a footprint in the EU, but sells into the EU, and it needs to appoint a representative in the EU. In other words, if you're in the US and post-Brexit, if you're in the UK and you have no physical establishment or location in the EU, but you sell your services or your product into the EU or you um, target EU data subjects, then you're obliged to have a representative on the ground in the EU in order to represent you for contact with data subjects and contact with uh, supervisory authorities as well. So, uh, you know, an often uh, forgotten obligation that is already, that, that, that exists in the GDPR and uh, um, conversely also exists now in the UK GDPR, meaning that if you are in Europe, 
for instance, if you're in Ireland or France or Germany, and you don't have a physical establishment or a um, an office, for instance, in the UK, post-Brexit, you, if you're targeting the UK market, market or selling into the UK market um, or monitoring people in the UK in the course of your activities, then you'll need to appoint an equivalent UK representative in the UK. So Brexit is, has quite wide-ranging impacts, of course, um, you know, much broader than just data protection, but just some, some interesting aspects of a, um, the data protection impact of, um, of Brexit. Yeah. So I guess you're saying, in other words, that, that it's a, if they're in the UK, going to the UK, there's somebody there who's going to be basically the data controller who manages the data for them. It's not quite the data controller, no. So the, the, the organisation that is outside the UK and selling into the UK needs to appoint a, a, what's called a representative. And that representative is exactly that. It represents them. So their office location uh, would be noted on their privacy policy. They'd have to be formally appointed. And they do some low-level tasks, such as managing the record of processing activities for, yeah. um, for the non-UK-based company. And then they would deal with or be the point of contact for any UK-based data subjects. And, of course, the UK regulator would be able to make contact with the, reg- with the representative and um, who would then obviously refer all of those, those contacts to the non-UK-based company. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting aspect because it extends sort of the footprint of the GDPR and, and to outside the jurisdiction um, and means that you need to have somebody effectively with boots on the ground locally um, to, to be your, your point of contact, to, to in effect be your representative. And, and at BSI, we're, we're launching that Article 27 representative services for both clients um, outside of the EU and outside the UK. We're lucky because we have got um, operational capacity in our consulting team in the UK, of course, uh, where our headquarters are, um, and uh, and around Europe, uh, most um, obviously here in Ireland, um, where we have a significant number of privacy consultants um, able to support uh, non-EU-based uh, companies and, and the, the new, I suppose, or rather the, the maybe the, uh, the more visible Article 27 compliance obligations that they will have uh, post-Brexit. So it'll be like an old movie where it goes, our man in London. That's what it kind of like. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not too similar to that. You know, we have, we have a guy in London or we have a guy in Dublin. Yeah. And, and uh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a really good analogy, Ron. Yeah. Now, talking about compliance issues, how do you manage them for global data transfers when we're pertaining to stuff like contractual uh, clauses and, and reviews? Lucas, it's one of the ongoing challenges, I think, of, of a global privacy program or just local domestic compliance um, with the domestic laws. You need to know what transfers you actually have. One of the simplest forms of, um, or rather one of the, the, the obvious um, compliance requirements in the GDPR, for example, is the Article 30 Register of Processing Activities. Uh, I mentioned it previously. What is it? Well, fundamentally, it's just a list of all of the different things that you do with personal data, including where you might transfer that data, whether you transfer that data to third parties, uh, and if you transfer that data to third parties, mm-hmm. or are they, in, are they in third countries? And if you transfer them to third countries, what are the safeguards and the measures that you put in place that you know, enable you to transfer that? So what's the lawful, the lawful basis for the transfer to yeah. that third country? And what are those protections that you put in place? So you need to know, in order to be compliant, you need to know um, what data transfers you actually have. And, and that's the first step. You need to ensure that you've got visibility of those transfers, whether that might be a really maintained, uh, well and up-to-date register of processing activities, as envisaged by Article 30, um, or uh, data maps, for instance, in terms of actually knowing what flows of personal data are in place, you know, at an infrastructure level, at a data level, whatever that might be. Yeah. Then I would suggest that organisations, um, and I'm very much a, a risk advocate and, and, and I always advocate taking a risk-based approach, so naturally enough, I would suggest taking a risk-based approach. What do I mean by that? Well, on the basis of all of the data that your organisation has, a subset of that information, that data, is going to be personal data. Uh, perhaps a subset of that is going to be subject to international data transfers or to, to, to data transfers to third parties. So we need to sort of 
scored on the basis of some uh, determinants and, and some specific criteria. Things like the size of the the volume, the volume of the data, maybe the sensitivity of the data or the criticality of that data to your core business processes in terms of your revenue generating processes. So prioritizing those large volume, large you know high, highly sensitive or critical data transfers, and, and making sure I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying oh well prioritize them. What does that mean? It means they're the ones that you need to look at first and then you work down from that. And when you're looking at those data transfers, don't just stand back and admire them and go, aren't they great? Actually, um, make sure that there are contracts in place with those third parties to enable those transfers, that the lawful basis to transfer that data is fairly clear, and that the, the requisite safeguards and measures, especially around security, integrity, confidentiality, and um, obligation for, them, for the data processors to report breaches. Basically, anything that's outlined in, in Article 28 of the GDPR needs to be established and agreed in that contract, because as data can controller, you have the responsibility. And yes, it's a cliche, you can outsource the processing activity, but you can't outsource the responsibility. You need to have visibility of these transfers and to have assurance, um, you know, for your customers, for your auditors, um, to enable trust, um, etc., that you've got um, the right controls in place. Some of, the, some of the, the obvious things maybe for organizations to consider is to make sure that you know what should go into a contract, yeah. that you know the contents, maybe the, the template, the framework for a standard contractual clause, if that's the, the mechanism that you're relying on transferring the data. You know, what needs to be in that? What does it look like? Do we have template ones? And critically, you know, the, the right to audit or the right to, to access information about what your third party is going to be doing with your data is important as well. Now, obviously, an awful lot of the, the large um, uh, players in the market probably won't let you within an arse's roar of, uh, of their data centers, but um, being able to have some form of third party assurance process to sort of to, to satisfy yourselves or any other internal audience, whether that's internal audit, risk, compliance, or external audience, such as auditors, investors, and your, of course your customers, um, so that you can give assurance and have assurance that risks relating to transfers to third parties, to third countries, are documented and managed and proactively managed over time as well. Okay, that's great to know because I know that's something that's going to be a major worry for people in the future when they're dealing with countries that, are, that maybe aren't in the EU or, or maybe someone in a country that you're not too sure about their political climate in the country. So it's good to know, for example, what you can do to prevent your data being misused. Absolutely. And I think, I think the, the, you know, the simplest form of advice I can, I, can, I can offer to organizations is, look, the GDPR has got provisions in place for these types of situations. So use the mechanisms that are provided for in the GDPR. Things like relying on adequacy agreements or relying on um, standard contractual clauses and making sure that suitable, appropriate, technical safeguards and measures are established and put in place. Because if you are transferring data to jurisdictions that might not be considered to be adequate, well then the obligation is yours to make sure that people's data protection rights are protected. And, and, and that's, um, that's the bar that has been set by the GDPR. Yeah, I'm thinking, for example, uh, in Trump's America, where Trump has decided that certain countries you shouldn't deal with and what if you're a country in the EU and you're dealing with them, Trump can suddenly say, well, actually, uh, you're not allowed to deal with them because we say so. That kind of stuff is kind of, is kind of scary as well. Yeah, look, it is. And, and of course, you know, I think when there are concerns around specific jurisdictions, then I, I would absolutely, um, you know, advise that organisations document those concerns and, and make it very clear to internal and external stakeholders that you are assessing um, the risks associated with those. And, and to be honest, set an appetite, you know, yeah. don't, don't, um, don't transfer data just because. Um, you know, uh, to, to be honest, the, 
I'm always thought about, I always think about, well, the what if situation. Like, what if there was a breach? What if there was a problem? Would we be able to um, resolve those issues quickly? Would we be able to get out of the situation quickly? Um, do we have the necessary protections, not only for our customers and the personal data, of course, because that is paramount, but also for ourselves? Can we manage our reputation risk properly? And do we have the necessary comeback, um, whether it's in, in a contract um, or other forms of... Um, um, of, of comeback and, and protections um, in place for us. And, and you know, if the, if the answers to those types of questions are no, well then those those transfers are probably too risky to undertake. And, and uh, you know, um, I would always suggest making sure that you, you clearly rationalise transfers, you understand the impact that those transfers will have both on the data subjects that will be in scope, but also on the, um, the commercial operations of your organisation. Because yeah, it, today we live in the world of social media where any news can spread like a wildfire, whereas 20 years ago that wouldn't be the case. Now it is the case. You've got to make sure your reputation doesn't get sullied on, online as well. And that's exactly it. Reputation is going. To, uh, reputation today is, is is a very significant and um, uh, asset to organisations, to many organisations. It takes a long time to build it up, but it can take a second to destroy it. So, reputation or risk is something that does need to be factored into things. Um, um, and you know, it, it it can be quantified in different measures uh, for different organisations, depending on the industry that you're in. If you're a business to business organisation, your reputation as a service provider is obviously going to be very yeah. important. If you're a business to customer B2C organization, uh, your reputation as a trusted uh, partner for, for individuals um, might be might be seen to be more important. So, this, you know, there's different ways of measuring that reputation, but reputation and risk should always, in my book, um, be considered in risk assessments, in the assurance processes, in the third-party risk management process that I mentioned earlier as well, um, because, um, you know, that, 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 that value that our organizations have in the marketplace uh, of their reputation it's critical to their continued success. I, I come back to 10 years ago, you, you say to a company, if they're not, if they're not doing things uh, properly, you could say, well, I'll, I'll call Joe Duffy. Nowadays, you say, I'll go on Twitter. Because I'll go on Twitter. That's the modern version of that, and it's yeah. just as bad. It is. It is. It absolutely is. I used to. I used to. I remember a number of workshops with a number of my clients over the years, where we would always um, uh, workshop the situation of well, what if you were on the front page of the Irish Times? What if you were um, the the main topic in the calling show on, on Joe Duffy? And and yes, I think the, the the sort of the modern, the postmodern, if you want, uh, version of that uh, sort of uh, scenario is um, what if you were trending on Twitter uh, because of a data breach or a problem and. Um, what would you do? And they're great questions to ask of um, businesses and of executives and, and uh, to see their responses and to determine their capabilities for thinking on their feet and, and planning for situations like that. That's important as well. Yeah. Now, at the moment, we're, li- we're living in a, in a pandemic and more and more of us are, mo- are working remotely and, uh, and are moving to the cloud. What are the main benefits and matches of moving to the cloud? Oh, that's a great question, Ron. Um, yes, uh, middle of mid pandemic, uh, we've seen, uh, I suppose, ever since the start of the pandemic and uh, the shift to remote working really required organizations to up their game in terms of uh, providing technology solutions, software solutions to their staff. And, and to be honest, I, I'm a big advocate for the cloud. Uh, the cloud is a, a strategy, uh, or adopting a cloud first strategy is a, is, a, is is a cost-effective way for organizations to manage, you know, obviously now very devolved workforces to provide platforms and technology solutions and software solutions to their employees, to their customers, and quickly in a scalable manner, uh, you know, manage costs that would typically be associated with maintaining hardware on premises and, you know, the physical uh, security controls that would be needed uh, to protect the environmental controls that would be needed to protect that equipment as well. Um, but both, um, I think one of the biggest and probably the biggest asset for cloud-based technologies is its availability, its scalability, um, and your ability to manage um, security centrally as well. So to keep things up to date, to patch things on a regular basis and ensure things are all, everything is patched. Uh, you can even outsource that obligation to cloud service providers. Um, but it's scalability, your ability to scale it up and down as you might, be, as you might, as you might need to, um, and the fact that it 
it, it increases um, the availability of your core services, of your core platforms, your core data uh, to something approaching 100%. Um, you know, and obviously with real-time backups and mirroring across different jurisdictions and geographies, you know, it really represents a cost-effective um, uh, approach for organizations um, to manage storage, to manage applications, uh, and to manage data. Now, of course, with all of that said, there are obviously security implications and privacy implications that organizations need to consider as well. So, you know, I would never advocate um, to, to, to clients or customers of mine or any organization for that matter, oh, we'll just put it all in the cloud. It's, it's too easy to say, it's, you know, it's not the cut for market, I should just stick it in the cloud. You really need to think through that process. You know, there are compliance obligations that you need to verify that you're still going to be able to uphold, not least in terms of introducing another third party potentially into your supply chain um, and into the stack uh, that you need to be able to monitor and provide assurance and get assurance over, maybe provide assurance to your customers, etc. cetera. Um, uh, but also, you know, having the capability um, uh, to assess that can be complicated as well. So you really do need to take your time and sort of arriving at that decision, um, but um, there are there are thousands of organisations providing cloud storage, cloud solutions uh, for all different processes that organisations would typically have had on premise um, or even manually done yeah. in uh, in the days of pen and paper. So you know, I think technology in and of itself, the cloud technology that we're talking about has really enabled organizations to respond quickly to um, uh, the pandemic situation that they found themselves in, to deploy solutions quickly to employees. But what I would absolutely um, caution is the, the the pace of doing that. You know, a lot of organizations were very quick to move and found themselves rolling out technology solutions that they hadn't had experience in before. And they did it very quickly, obviously, to respond to the changing um, government restrictions in different parts of the world. But that led to, you know, potential security incidents or potential data protection compromises and privacy breaches either of staff or um, of customers, etc. And you just need to, to, to be to be alert to things like this. When you're introducing new technology, you're also introducing new risks and you need to have capable processes in place, proven processes in place to be able to deal with change, but also to be able to deal with change in a compliant way. Yeah, for me, the past 10 years, the biggest uh, security risk in work has been BOID, bring your own device. Now, if you're working from home, chances are you're going to be using a device that's also used by your family. It could be a modem or it could be a computer. So you've got to make sure whatever you're using is going to be able to uh, handle that cloud data in a responsible, secure way as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's a really good point. You know, and um, I was talking with a colleague, um, uh, recently, a former colleague, um, recently, and, and this is the topic of conversation was explicitly this that you know organisations were worried about BYOD, but now it's really bring your own network, isn't it? Yeah. Because people remote working are dialing in from home. Yes, they're on home internet connections, Wi-Fi, wired connections, etc. But how secure are their access points? How secure is their home network? They might be able to VPN in, so there might be secure connections back into the office, etc. But consequently, you're extending your perimeter, your corporate perimeter, which used to be defined by, you know, the physical doors in your building, uh, the number of access points that you could clearly count out in the network internally in the business, in, in the building, to now being invisible for want of a better term, you know, to, to being remote, uh, to being devolved into people's homes, uh, you know, so it's not just bring your own device, it's actually much broader than that. And there are, there are big implications from a security perspective. Um, and I was, uh, you know, I suppose from my perspective, speaking personally, I was really amazed at how quickly our security teams uh, and our IT people in BSI was able to um, devolve the entire organization to a remote working environment back in March. Uh, and nine months later, I'm still in my spare bedroom in the house here um, as my own mini office. And it's testament to organizations' uh, ability to react quickly um, and to manage that in a, in a controlled manner, which I think we've been able to leverage cloud technologies and obviously the modern technology um, that we're, we're all very familiar with in a way that we never have before. And, and I think, 
you know, society um, is obviously going through a very challenging time with the global pandemic still ongoing. But we're, we've definitely seen how resilient we can be as people, as organisations, as, as nations, as, as, a, as, a, as a human race, um, given the backdrop of, of a pandemic, but still sustain um, you know, core businesses, sustain um, operations and, and, and make sure the people still, still go to work. Yeah, and also you've got to make sure as well, like if you're at home and you're, you're in, a, in a house or an apartment, it's got a lot of IT devices, like an IoT fridge or an IoT cooker, for example, or or uh, any IoT device. You got to make sure that device kind of beats the hackers. Once that's hacked, that gets into your system. You can take anything from that. And also, if you get any devices that, like Alexa, for example, or anything, you got to make sure those devices kind of suddenly be recording anything you're doing work-wise as well. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I think organisations need to be alert to the the, the dangers that, that 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 you know, quote unquote, dangers uh, that that lurk in people's homes. And and you know, we've been working with organisations over the past nine months to to improve their 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 policy framework around uh, remote working, uh, telecommuting, whatever you want to call it, including making um, provisions for um, I suppose the secure. Uh, environment in which their staff have to work, uh, removing things like smart speakers from from uh, the immediate vicinity of the office, you know, this, this home office, to ensure that conversations with clients and customers um, isn't captured on these types of devices because, uh, you know, not just the corporate technologies, and um, it's not just those uh, corporate technologies that have improved massively over the last 20 and 30 years. It's consumer technology as well, with the power that's in people's pockets, the smart speakers that might be at home, as you mentioned, IoT devices yeah. that might be in people's homes. I recently built a house, and the one thing I was adamant about not putting in anywhere with smart fridges, smart cookers, anything to do with smart devices. I think the smartest gadget I have in my house um, is probably my work laptop. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I think organisations really do need to be alert to that because there are privacy and security implications with everything that organisations do, not least in responding to continuity um, events such as global pandemics. Um, and you know, I don't know how many organisations had uh, you know pandemics um, and epidemics in their um, business continuity plan or you know trials. Also, if you're using your plan to use your family's phone computer, make sure you have profiles for work and, and for home use as well, so that you can't get compromised that way as well. Absolutely. I mean, ideally, organisations should be looking to provide their own hardware. Not every organisation is in a position to be able to do that. But there are, again, on the basis of risk, simple control measures that you can put in place, such as restricting profiles and making sure that the antivirus is patched um, and that there's secure connections in terms of maybe of things like VPNs uh, back into corporate networks, etc. Um, and, of course, leveraging um, cloud technologies and multi-factor authentication in terms of securing user access into those cloud platforms uh, for data storage and data management. Um, so yes, uh, you know, making sure that there's an appropriate security and privacy response to a required um, organization's response uh, for things like um, uh, the, the global pandemic that, uh, that everybody's currently dealing with. And I guess lastly, make sure that you've got broadband that, that actually can handle more than one device because if, say, you're at home with family and you have your family in the house who are actually at school or college and they're, and they're doing their class remotely. You've got to make sure you can, they can handle the broadband uh, speed as well as, as well as you as well. So there's no issue where you're going to get lag. Absolutely. I think one of the one of the most obvious um, outcomes of the global pandemic is just how much society today relies on a good internet connection and, you know, internet service providers, the broadband network, uh, whether that's 4G, 
you know, the imminent 5G networks rolling out around the world um, or fixed-line broadband, just how, how much almost like a utility um, these networks have become. Um, and I know for sure that when my kids get home in the, in the afternoon now after school, I can definitely see the hit on the bandwidth when the, you know, the, the video gaming and the video streaming websites are, are loaded up. So, yeah, most definitely um, uh, it's really interesting to see that, you know, we're not, we're not just in a situation now where water um, and electricity are um, our core uh, critical infrastructure and utilities with broadband enabling business, enabling commerce um, uh, and of course uh, public sector services as well are absolutely vital to have um, and I think a lot of places around the world, not least in Ireland um, a lot of places around the world have a long way to go before um, before they can say their, their, their broadband infrastructure is in a really good place. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I, I totally agree, Roland. It's, 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 um, it's scary just how much bandwidth uh, one household can consume when there are three, four, five, six devices um, streaming on video calls, playing video games, um, uh, on you know cooking classes or sing-along yeah. um, uh, get-togethers with uh, with the local musical society or whatever else it might be might be in uh, that that uh, we're trying to, to 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 retain that human connection in a very socially distanced um, and unusual environment. It's funny early in the year my TV provider finally provided me with a, a new setup TV box. And it said, for three year or more months, we're going to double your broadband speed. I was getting like 280 80 meg. Now it's half a gig. And I'm thinking, I don't need half a gig. But it's great to have it there. Because I know that one day, I'm lucky to live alone. But if one day I wasn't living alone, that speed will come in so handy. That's exactly it. That, that's exactly it. I'm a firm believer that you can never have too much bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I was offered a chance. I was then told for like five or ten year or more a month, if I want, I can go for one gig. I'm going, no, I'm never going to need one gig in my lifetime. I can't see I'm ever needing yeah. one gig at all. I know, I know. There's definitely, there's definitely, there's definitely come, comes to mind a few people who I know who be jumping at the chance of one gig. But um, I think, uh, I, I think you know, if you if you can manage to to uh, to stream, to download, to uh, to be on video calls, um, you know, to sync your your devices, etc. You know, it should be all good. But um, yeah, as I said, I'm a firm believer. The more, more the more bandwidth you can get, the better. Because I remember back in the day when I, when I was used to uh, when I was on dial-up. And it would take about 10 minutes to download a one meg file. And now we're yeah, in broadband. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm we've yeah, and now I'm looking at this and, and there's me thinking, will I ever need a gig? When, when back in those days, I would have killed for a gig. <laughs> Broadband speed. I don't, think I, knew, I, don't think, I don't think I knew what a gig was back in the days of 56k dial-up. <laughs> no, but I think basically, looking back then, we would take it because it, it, it sounded like something like at a Star Trek space age. But looking back now, now we know that we can do, if we can manage our data, our, our, our data connections uh, better and know what viruses are going to be on there, it's, it's a, lot, a hell of a lot easier. Uh, that's exactly it. It's about capacity management and, you know, um, just making sure that you've got the capacity to enable what you need to do. Um, and organizations, I think, need to, again, take that risk-based approach, make, make sure that there are security provisions in place, uh, that there are proper policy frameworks in place to, to, to manage the security implications, but also the privacy implications of, of this now significant bandwidth consumption that's happening um, from, from a corporate perspective, but in a remote home environment. Yeah. Well, anyway, Connor, thanks very much for that enlightening uh, talk about, about, about privacy and the future of SHREMS and all that and uh, GDPR and other things as well and Safe Harbour. And hopefully this time next year, we'll no longer be talking about uh, remote working as a lockdown, but more, le- more like as a luxury that we can have now and again in work. I, I totally agree, Ronan, and, and uh, I really look forward to uh, being able to meet up with you in person rather than uh, doing it remotely. Yeah. Um, but uh, as, as you said, maybe this time next year we will uh, be able to, to, to see the, the societal benefits and the lifestyle benefits that uh, remote working has reaped on, on the entire country. But uh, Ronan, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been, it's been a real pleasure talking Likewise. to you. Likewise, and hopefully this time next year, if you've money invested in Zoom, you'll be a millionaire. <laughs> That's the hope. All right, take care. Thanks for that, Connor. Have a great day. You too, Robin. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.